I think that many of you in the church are travelers. We have a traveling church. Uh, many of you uh, do business on other continents or vacation to other countries. Um, in most of the places that we frequent when we travel, we feel relatively safe. There's uh, kind of a cultural familiarity to the places we go that even though they may speak a somewhat different language, um, oftentimes English is understood for many of us. Or at least our U.S. citizenship is a, a respected. And I don't mean respected in a personal sense, um, but certainly respected in a sort of uh, citizenry. We don't have to worry about our safety um, simply because we're American citizens. That's in most of the places we go. In fact, in many places we go, if something um, comes up, you have an embassy to which you can appeal. You have a U.S. embassy, and it's, it's you know, in the foreign country, but it has many of the sovereign diplomatic powers that the chief of state would have here. In fact, the ambassador himself is that there's a word that defines the ambassador that was used a long time ago called plenipotentiary, which means he has the full powers of the sovereign head of state. Like early in the 1800s before internet and phone and these sorts of things, the ambassador in these foreign countries would have to think, how would the sovereign representative of my nation behave in this situation? And he could make treaties and alliances and these sorts of things in his own little dominion on behalf of the sovereign head of state. And so when we travel, we have, in most places we go, Europe and, and many places like that, we, we kind of have this, this trust that our citizenry, our U.S. citizenship is protected, that's guarded, that we have recourse if we are unlawfully jailed or imprisoned or these sorts of things. We have this just understanding that a phone call, and there's going to be somebody that pulls up in a big black car that can't get a ticket, and he's going to get out, and he's going to lobby for you, and he's going to get, break you out of jail because that's what embassies are for. That's kind of how it is in most of the places that most of us go. But there are some other places in the world that uh, we can go, some of you do go to, where the rules are different. And they may not just be different, there's less rules in some of these places. Um, or they're so different it doesn't feel like there are any rules. Those places that we can go where either there is no U.S. embassy, like the relationship between the United States and this nation is in shambles or is non-existent, or we don't even recognize the, the authority that claims to be in charge over there, so we won't even put an embassy there. We're not even recognizing them. Or we've had to leave the embassy because they no longer recognize the respect or the fear or the kind of deference due our nation in that country. Or we're in a place that there is an embassy, but we're so far away from it. We're out in the Wild West in certain areas of certain countries um, where nobody cares because the embassy can't ever come and help. And those places, they exist today. They certainly do. If you were dropped out of an airplane tomorrow and you parachuted into Somalia, it would feel this way. Right? The embassy's been shut down and you would certainly be recognized for who you are. And you would find yourself in a survival situation. Not a survival situation like, where am I going to find food to eat? But how am I going to get out of this public marketplace? A lot. Maybe. 
And there's those places around the world, certain areas of the Sudan and northern Uganda, certain areas of Southeast Asia, certainly some areas in uh, the northern Middle East and, and certain other countries. You could even find that in certain occasions in large cities, even in the United States, a place you would not want to be parachuted into. That uh, the rules would take their effect long before the embassy would arrive. There's more than once in my career I've been advised that I should be Canadian, should someone ask. These kind of places um, that we go to. There is, um, it isn't so much about just their different rules. There's a darkness about these places. There is a certain kind of um, dark-heartedness about some of these places. Where, where just the, la- the respect for human life is lower. The respect and dignity that one person gives another is lower. There is a time in the Bible when, when Abraham is walking through one of these towns. He's passing through. He stays for a short while in one of these towns. And this is how he says it. He says it this way. He says, there is surely no fear of God in this place. That's how he explained this kind of environment. And this is the very kind of environment that Isaac finds himself in this morning. Would you open your Bibles to Genesis 26? We're continuing on. We've kind of leapfrogged a little bit over the Jacob-Esau scenario. We'll tackle it a little bit more next Sunday. Or two Sundays from now, rather. But we're going to be in Genesis 26, verses 1 to 11. And we're going to just kind of creep through verse by verse and kind of allow things to unfold as as they approach. And so with that, I'll begin. I think it's probably 17 or 18 if you're using one of our Bibles, page 17 or 18. Let's just read verse 1, and then we'll talk about it for a bit. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. So this this story starts with saying, there's a famine. It's a different famine than the one you're probably thinking about. It's kind of how the story starts. It's another famine. It's not the famine in Abraham's time. It's an additional famine. So in case you were confused, in case you were thinking this is the famine of Abraham's time, it's saying, no, this is not the famine of Abraham's time. It's another famine, a different famine. Not Abraham's famine. It's kind of an odd way to start a story. In fact, there probably was about 50 or 75 years between these two famine. Famines? These two famines. And then it says this. It says that uh, Isaac has come, uh, apparently on account of this famine, that he's come to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. So Philistia is um, an area that's still well embedded inside of Canaan. So it's part of the promised land. You would imagine it's the Gaza Strip today, if you're familiar with your Middle Eastern geography. It's the Gaza Strip kind of area. And this town, Gerar, has this king named Named Abimelech. And what's kind of happened is what often happens in famines is there's kind of a migration out of the highlands and out of the more arid parts towards uh, places, lower places where there may be more water to be found. If you ever see these nature shows um, where they talk about, you know, the, the drought of the Serengeti and they show the water holes drying up, if you've seen these things, and what it'll sometimes they'll end with is there's this, it almost looks like a mud hole. 
and every kind of species of animal is trying to get water out of it. Animals that normally are hunting each other down are kind of have this very uncomfortable community about them. And there's this overly bloated crocodile like sitting in the mud hole because he doesn't want to eat anymore. He doesn't want to eat for six months because animals have had to risk things and they've had to kind of let go of their own envelope of safety in order just to get water. That's what happens during these famines is, is people have, kind of have to leave their places of comfort and their places of safety and they have to come in and congregate at these watering hole kind of towns like Gerar. And it says that Isaac went to, and he spoke to the king. You might imagine, I'm just guessing here, but I don't think it's a stretch, that he's trying to do something like negotiate water rights. Right? He's got a lot of sheep and cattle and flocks. He's there to say, you know, what will it cost me to allow my sheep to drink from your wells, these sorts of things. And I don't think it went well, and this is why. Let's read verse 2. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I, will, where I tell you to live. You hear that? So, so Isaac is, is meeting with the king of the area, the ruler of the area. And the Lord sees fit to enter into this conversation and say, Don't go to Egypt. Now, I, the reason I think it's probably not going that well in Gerar is the fact that God needs to say, Don't go to Egypt. In other words, I imagine in Isaac's mind, he's thinking, I think we're just going to keep going to Egypt. Like, it's just, it's not safe, it's not worth it, whatever. But the Lord has to say, look, don't go to Egypt. Why why would you go to Egypt if it was fine in Gerar? Why would you say, well, it's in the middle of a drought, we're going to walk through a desert all the way to Egypt to get to the Nile, if the situation here was ideal? I'm I'm guessing that the situation here was not ideal. And the Lord says, stay here and I'll bless you. And he gives him a little more of a promise. I'll read through five. Verse three. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and will bless you for you and your descendants. I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. So I think he's thinking about leaving. The Lord says, don't leave. He says, I stay. And then something happens, which which is is probably a bigger moment in Isaac's life, certainly than we're going to spend on it this morning. It seems that God uses this opportunity to make the promise that he gave to Abraham real in the life of Isaac. This is, if you're looking for the story of Isaac and you're trying to wonder, you know, kind of what role does he play, I would say this would be one of those significant, significant moments in his life where God becomes real to Isaac and the promise becomes real to Isaac and Isaac kind of steps in to the promise. In fact, it, the request is a little different, but it requires the same amount of faith. The Lord says to Abraham, leave your country your people and your family's household, and come to the place that I will show you. And here he says to Isaac, stay in this country and watch the promises I'll give you. But the promises are almost identical. They're almost verbatim. I'll bless you. I'll make your descendants great. I'll give you this land. You'll be like the stars in the sky. I mean, these things were said to Abraham in more than one way, on more than one occasion. And it ends with, and all the earth will be blessed through you, which is right out of Genesis chapter 12. 
It's interesting here, the reason why he offers this promise to Isaac, by the way, is on account of Abraham. He says, stay in the land, and I'll bless you. And he gives him the promises. I'll give you the land, I'll make you descendants, I'll, I'll multiply you, the world will be blessed through you. And then he says this, because Abraham obeyed me. He followed my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. Because of that, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, this promise continues. In other words, he's kind of suggesting to Isaac that because your father made the promise central in his life, right? I, the Lord spoke a promise to Abraham, and Abraham oriented the whole, his whole life around this promise. I mean, think of, listen to the repetition of terms. He obeyed me. He followed my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. Do you hear the... I mean, it sounds like it was a fairly big deal in Abraham's life. Almost like it had almost become fairly mosaic, like like almost the law had kind of arisen out of Abraham's life of trying to to hold on to this promise. And the Lord says, because of that, because because Abraham was full of faith towards me, I am going to be full of faith towards you. And so Isaac stays. He remains in Gerar which I can only assume is an act of faith and trust in the Lord. Now, I think this is an act of faith. I don't think that Gerar is a friendly town. I think he would have just as soon left. And and let's just read this verse 7. Verse 7 is going to blow it all up, so I'm going to come back. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. That's why I don't think it's a friendly town. That that's the kind of people that Isaac thinks he's dealing with. Right? He comes, he meets the king, and then the Lord says, look, don't go to Egypt. It makes me feel like he was going to leave. Like, like this is not a safe place to live. That there's, we are in a foreign land, I think Isaac's feeling like. We are not among our people. There's no embassy here. There's no recourse for Isaac to kind of go to, to claim um, sanctuary. He is at the mercy of this, this, this town and these people. And there surely is no fear of God, it seems, among these people. Like it feels to him, it certainly feels to him as though his life is at stake on the count of the fact that he has a beautiful wife. And yet God said, stay here, stay, and I want to bless you. And I, I think we need to stop here for a second. I want to explain the situation. I don't want to excuse Isaac. I want to explain the situation. Um, so Isaac is to blame, and this is bad. But I want, I want to, we'll get there in a second. What I want to do first, though, is kind of help transfer, transform this from an ancient issue. I think in most of your minds, this is an ancient problem. You're, have, you're trying to get your mind around what kind of crazy man would trade over his wife, and what kind of crazy land is this? I don't think this is an ancient problem. I just think we live in nice neighborhoods. There are places on the earth right now, not, not one or two, There are many places on the planet right now 
where the kinds of issues that might make a man nervous just like this are alive and well. There are places all over the earth where surely there is no fear of God in this place. There's child abuse, there's oppression, there's trafficking, there's violence, there's brutality, there's genocide. The 2010 State Department report on human trafficking says this. Right now there are 12.3 million people on the earth who are classified as slaves. 12.3. That's more than any other time in human history. By slave, I mean someone who's in forced labor or bonded labor or forced prostitution. 56% of the 12.3 estimated slaves are women or girls. There are places where if you are pushed out of an airplane and parachuted in with your wife, you would be in a survival situation. That's what I'm saying. I'm not excusing them. I just don't want this to feel so ancient to you. Like the world is just as rotten as it ever has been. We've just lived in nice neighborhoods. We live in a land that has had the fear of God in this land, whether or not we still admit it, whether or not we still accept it, whether or not we we ever were a Christian nation or not a Christian nation. It's immaterial. At some point in in our heritage here, there was a fear of God. There was a godly fear that if you do something bad, you receive the judgment of it. And I'm saying there are places all over the earth where this doesn't exist in the same God fearing way. Nonetheless, Isaac is sinning here. He's doing something very sinful. He's lying. He's placing his wife, whom he loves. He loves Rebecca, by the way. The story here is going to be consistent with that. But he, he's placing his wife, whom he loves, in harm's way. If you just trust that Isaac loves his wife, it makes you appreciate the nervousness of the situation all the more. The real sin is not really the lying or what he's doing to his wife. This is the real sin. That's the fruit on the tree. If you want to go to the roots, this is the roots. God said stay. Isaac stays. But Isaac is securing his own safety apart from God. That's the sin. The sin is is that Isaac is not trusting God for his own safety here. And he's taking it into his own hands. And by taking it into his own hands, he's doing something that's sinful. But the sinful fruit of telling an untruth and of selling his wife down the river, those are coming from the fact that he believes God tells him to stay here. But he's not trusting God to take care of him. And I think this is a consistent theme, not just in Genesis or the Old Testament or the Bible. I think it's a consistent theme in our lives. This idea that we have to trust God to do a really big thing. Many of us trust God to do a very, very big, miraculous, unbelievable thing, like saving your soul from judgment. Somehow we trust that there is an eternal God who made heaven and earth. He's going to judge all mankind. and He's going to, he's going to save us and protect us and do this this thing that we can't even begin to imagine how we do it ourselves, that we have, it's easy to have, a, have faith in that. I don't know if it's easy. It's easier than it is to trust in the daily grind of surviving. This is the odd thing, is that on one hand, we can trust that God's going to save us, which is galactic. It's huge. I mean, you'd think, ah, it would be easier for me to believe a God who's going to protect me today than a God who's going to save my soul. 
but it seems like we have this, this ability to believe in this really big thing, but that it doesn't seem to translate into many of the small things around us. Like God saying, I'll, you stay and I'll bless you. And Isaac says, okay. But then he goes and he, he does this thing over his wife in order to save his life. I think we do the same thing in many different ways. In our own daily settings, the hard things of the day, I think we kind of feel like the Lord isn't here. Like he gave us a promise and he's going to come back one day and he's going to fulfill it. But in the meantime, he's not here and he's not doing it. And so many of us compromise in our daily lives. Why do we compromise? We compromise to survive. Now, I know you're not nervous unto death, but I want to know. So why does your language at work sound the way it does? Why that compromise? Because somewhere in the gears of our minds we're saying, if I don't behave this way, it will not go well with me. In its own small way, it's a very Isaac kind of question. We believe that God has this plan for us, but today he's not here. I'm in a hostile environment that will not accept me if I don't kind of compromise in these certain sorts of ways, whether it's your language, whether it's the way you, the jokes you laugh at, whether it's the kind of gossip you engage in, whether it's the kind of people you hang with, whether it's the conversations you engage in with your neighbors, whether it's the way that you, you are honest or dishonest on an exam at school, or, or the, the way you, you don't sit next to the kid on the bus. Whatever it is, these are all tiny compromises of the same problem. It's all the same problem. We say, well, you know, I would never do this to my wife. And I'd say, we're making compromises in unbelievably safe environments. The trajectory is the same. You're in a very safe environment, and you're you're dealing with compromise. The issue of compromise in the boardroom, or in the classroom, or in the playroom. I think it's because it feels like God isn't here. God's word to us today is stay in Gerar and don't compromise. That's his expectation. Is If I've told you to be here, many of you think this is where you're supposed to be. If God's told you to be here, the expectation is, is that your life and your success is not built upon compromise. It's built upon godliness. Now it feels lonely for many of us. I'll say the first, my first year in a fighter squadron, I was in Alaska, so it was already like far from the embassy. I was the only Christian in the squadron. It was painfully obvious. And it was lonely. And I have to say, it was full of compromise. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you. There's times when it's lonely. When you feel like, why is it so dark around me? It honestly feels like there is no fear of God in this place. And that's when we're tempted to compromise. And we want to know, where is the embassy? Where is the ambassador? Why can't we have, why isn't it, you know, this, we're, this is, we're all meeting in the embassy right now. This is a big embassy meeting, right? It's easy to kind of praise the Lord here and say good things here and feel confident here, right? Because we're taking care of one another. The authority of the Lord is certainly in this place. We have even songs about that. But it's when you leave the embassy and you get far away into your own place, that place where, where the compromise is, is knocking at the door in order that you might have the success with your friends or your clique or whatever it is, that's when it feels alone. And I'm, I'm here to say this morning, maybe you should think of it a little differently than maybe the 
the idea of abandonment. Maybe God has not abandoned you. Maybe he has sent you. Maybe it isn't like, woe is me, I'm the only one, where is God? Maybe it's, I've sent you among a people who surely have no fear of God. Bring them truth. And so then, when we think of it that way, our compromise is undermining the very purpose for which God may have placed us there. You may be there because you are the ambassador. You're sitting there waiting for some protection or some friend or something to come. And I think sometimes to some of us, God is saying, you are the only person there. Represent me well. Be be my ambassador on behalf of Jesus Christ. This says this, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Do you hear that? God's purpose in sending Christ is to reconcile the whole world back to himself. And he says it this way. He says he's reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And it says, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Don't compromise. You are an ambassador on Christ's behalf, carrying with you a message of reconciliation to a people who may not have any fear of God whatsoever. And he's saying, that's what you're doing. That's what I've done for you, and that's what you should be doing for me. It's my hope this morning that some of you would be encouraged, that if you do feel alone in your workplace, or the playgroup you attend, or the book club, or any of these, your classroom, your bus ride, You're smart enough to know your place, right? I want you to know, maybe you're not abandoned. Maybe you're just sent to be the light to somebody. Okay. There's like two points. There's two big points to this sermon. This is where, this is where you go. This guy had a terrible transition. There's two big points to this sermon. That was it. That's one. The second one, it's going to take the weirdest turn. The story's going to take such a weird turn that I'm just going to say, if you're like a note taker, like draw a line across your page, and we're going to go to the next big point. Uh, that's it. What a, what a preaching failure, huh? Here we go. Verse 8, will you read with me? When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. See, he loves her. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She's really your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, Now listen to this. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, 
if you thought that there surely is no fear of God among these people, if you had Isaac's mindset, now we're kind of in a quandary. Because surely there appears to be some kind of fear of God in these people. Where does it come from? I mean, there's some pre-existent morality. There's this understanding, and it isn't simply kind of cultural, it's guilt. He says the word guilt. He says, which means that in the eyes of some God, it would have been a great sin. What I mean to say is, is this king Abimelech seems to recognize that there's a God out there who says, don't do that to people. And that he says the guilt nearly fell on his whole city. He says, had someone put a hand on your wife, we, we, the city, would have endured and incurred the guilt of that. Isaac thought these people had no fear of God. Well, where did this fear of God come from? Well, the story of, remember I said earlier in Abraham, there's this one day that he's passing through a town and he says, surely there is no fear of God in this place. Well, the name of that town was Gerar. It was the very same town. And it was during that, that account, it's in Genesis 20, it's in that account that the Lord manifests himself greatly in the life of Abraham. So that the people of Gerar come under great and fearful realization of who God is really is. There's a place in a time in the story in Gerar where Abraham had to pray on behalf of the king, whose name was Abimelech. I don't know if it's a title or if it's the same person, just really old by this point. But he has to pray on behalf of Abimelech and his people so that God does not destroy them. That's kind of the severity of it. And by the end of the story, when Abraham is, is in Gerar, it ends this way. Abraham, take whatever land you want. It's yours. Just take land. And here's money. Here's lots of money. Here's money. Here's more money so that you don't ever think anything bad about us because we are so fearful of your God. That's roughly the story. To which you might think, wait a second. So Isaac thinks these people have no fear of God. It turns out they do have a fear of God. And it turns out the reason they have this fear of God is because Abraham, Isaac's dad, had this like fireworks display of God's power in there. By the way, and it wasn't like 60 years before Isaac was born. Isaac may have been born in Gerar. It's the year of his birth. Sarah may have been pregnant in Gerar. So it's, it's close enough to Isaac's lifetime. You would think that in some conversation between father and son about the people down in Philistia, Abraham would say, I'll tell you what, buddy. Man, you should have seen what God did to those Gerarians. Man, you're safe there. You just drop my name. Just You go there and just say Abraham, and everything will be peachy keen. Why doesn't he do that? Dads, wouldn't you do that? I mean, how often does the Lord do that for us? I think we would let our kids know. Here's why. Skip to chapter 20 with me. It's just a few pages back. I'm going to read 1 through 11. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. 
For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah. She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead. Because of the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them what had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you would have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? And Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. It's strange and it's humbling to think of the ways that our sins creep into the lives of our children. You think you've buried it. You think you've put it under the rug. You think it's way behind you. It was a long time ago. That's what you're saying. I'm here to say if it's in the soil, it's going to come up in the trees around you. And it's going to come up in weird ways. I'm not saying it's going to be a one-to-one transfer. What I'm saying is that children have this ability. They're great receptors and terrible processors. They know when something's wrong. They know, they know some version of you. So when you have an identity issue with God, when you have an identity or relationship issue with God, that is going to creep in the soil and it's going to come up in the trees around you. It's unavoidable. The sins of the fathers will be visited unto the third and fourth generation. It's not, it's not magic. It's reality. You think you're hiding it? Your, rea- your identity with God is different. And it's going to show up. Now this is big, and I'm sorry. Because we're at the end. There's three, I have three ways that you may be dealing with this. Why don't, why don't we... You know, Abraham never closes the loop on this. This is the frustrating thing about Abraham. There's two. His sin with Hagar and Ishmael, and these, these, this thing with Sarah. He never closes the issue on this. He never, you never see him building an altar for sacrifice. You never see him grieving before the Lord. You never see him confessing to Sarah. You don't see this. You see him going into Gerar and living a life of compromise and then sweeping it under the rug and thinking it's gone. It's gone. We say that because we think our son or our child or our daughter will never find themselves in a famine like I found myself in. Well, the famine's coming. There's one every generation. They're going to find themselves in the same town. They're going to find themselves asking the same questions. 
And we have been silent because we have not dealt with these issues. Here's three, three reasons why. Reason one, you're still living in sin. That's reason one why you're keeping this a secret from your children or your spouse or your friends or your parents or whatever. You're still continuing to live in sin. You don't have a repentant heart about it. There's something you're holding on to. So to share it would be a massive act of hypocrisy because you have no intention of actually turning your life around, submitting to Jesus Christ, bowing down before him and letting the redemption and the work of the Spirit to begin to work on it. It's still yours. You don't want to give it up and so you're keeping it a secret. And to that, I'd say that is the activity of an unbelieving sinner. To that, I'd say work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The day of judgment is not far ahead. And God will likely say to you, depart from me, you evildoer, I have never known you. There's like a thousand scriptures that echo that. And I'll say, your kids see it. They may not be able to interpret what it is. They know they don't have a redeemed parent. That's number one. Number two is this. You're not doing it. You regret it. But you're so ashamed of it. It suffocates you. That you can't even begin to imagine sharing it. Because it's there and it's shaped you. And it still hangs on you like a millstone. And it still affects the way that you understand life. All of this in your past. How can you even begin to share it with your kids? Because it's so messed up. To that, I would say, you have not experienced the full loving redemption of Jesus Christ. Do you think he just came to get you into heaven? He came to free you from that sin. It's a millstone. That's, take, put it on him. That's what this is for. Take those things and put it on him. You have these things and you have so much shame. That shame is a passive act of living in sin. You are saying that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is sufficient to atone for every sin on the whole planet but yours. That's what you're saying when you keep this wrapped up. And your kids will see it. Christians enjoy the redemption of Jesus. We rejoice in being ambassadors of the Lord. That is the mark of a Christian, is saying, I once was, I am not. I was a wretch. I am no longer a wretch. I'm a saint. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done in me. Some of you need to relish in the joy of true forgiveness. That's number two. Number three, some of you have turned to the Lord. You've been forgiven. You don't carry this millstone around your neck, but the issue is so uncomfortable that you don't know how. You're willing if you knew how. I have absolutely no help here. You're willing if you knew how to to convey this to your kids, but there's a few things you don't want to do. You don't, you don't want to convey it to your kids in a way that, that's kind of telling them a sinful war story because then you're feeling like you're going to lay the stonework for them to go try it. Can I get an amen? Yeah? You don't, you, you, we, kids, we've made these serious mistakes. Serious mistakes. And we have them, and we want to tell you, but we know that we're, when we say, don't play with matches, you're going to go, where are the matches? And so we have this, 
Lord, we're willing, to, we're willing to give it out if we can give it out in a way that can express to them the breadth of pain. Not just the event, you know? I mean, that may be a starting point for you, is begin to think about this as an issue of idolatry in your life. Explain it in your, to yourself and to the Lord as an issue of idolatry. Then you can kind of begin to explain it to your kids as, this is how my identity was wrecked by this thing. Not, I got really drunk one night and got a DUI. But you know what? I, had, I poured my, my entire desire to belong in what this promised to offer, and it never gave it to me. And it scra- I just my life got scraped off on the guardrail because of it. And if, if I only could have known this, I would never even wanted that. And what is that even saying? And when we, we, if you could start to build a testimonial about it. I'm saying, this third one, I, I'm, not, I'm with you, and I'm saying, use great care and wisdom. And be, with the Lord, and be with the Lord and seek the Lord and tell the Lord, I will not withhold a word except that you tell me to keep back. Like, make sure in yourself that you've worked through it all and that you have received the redemption and that, and that you have worked through all the sin issues. That's what you do now. And then I think the Lord will present it to you. And you don't need to tell your kid the worst thing you did when they're six. You know, you can wait a little while. But those times are coming, and it creeps into the soil, and it's going to come up in the trees around us. It happens. You've seen it. I've seen it. It happens. God has called us to be ambassadors, which means there's times when you'll feel alone because he sent you, not because he's abandoned you. And if you're where you're supposed to be, his response and his expectation is, be there, don't compromise. And then in this life of mistakes... I pray that we would live a life that knows that our children or the next generation is going to find themselves in their own famine. And I pray that we're willing to speak up and say, let me tell you what happened to me once.